Join the conversation by becoming part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network Facebook group, like the Digging for Kryptonite Facebook page, and follow us on Instagram at Digging for Kryptonite Pod and on Twitter at Digging for KR Pod. Also, be sure to visit flatsquirrelproductions.com for more film and podcast projects, including My Comic Shop History and My Comic Shop Country. Thank you. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss the forgotten run on Adventures of Superman by writer Joe Casey is the host of the Superhero Cinephiles podcast, Perry Constantine. Perry, welcome to the show. Hey, Anthony, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm doing good. I just uh, finished watching uh, the new season of Superman and Lois, so I'm really looking forward to jumping in and uh, taking this little trip down memory lane with, uh, with these issues we're talking about today. Excellent. And before we get into it, I want to thank you for having me on your show, Superhero Cinephiles, a while back. We did a very fun episode on Spider-Man 3, not the Tom Holland Spider-Man 3, the original Tobey Maguire Spider-Man 3. I think I think we did that movie justice. It was a lot of fun. I think so, too. I mean, there was... Um... You know, you, you brought you point out some stuff that I didn't even know about, like the the editor's cut, I think it was called of that movie, which I still got to check out. Um, and I I came away with it. I wouldn't necessarily say I, I like the movie, but I appreciate different aspects of it more than I did before. And that's that's kind of a running trend with uh, with you, because your show here and uh, and when you came on to talk about uh, Spider-Man, um, you've gotten me to to kind of look at things in a different way uh, with, with regards to mostly Superman stuff, obviously, too. Well, I mean, that's awesome to hear. And maybe that's the Rocky fan in me. I, I like an underdog. <laughs> and sometimes sometimes, you know, these stories, you know, need 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 someone in their corner, you know, kind of mm-hmm. kind of, you know, fighting for them, advocating for them. But it was a lot of fun. I, I encourage everyone to check out Superhero Cinephiles. And I'm happy to have you here for this. So, you know, I refer to this in my intro as the, or one of the forgotten eras of the Adventures of Superman comic. Now, audience, you know, your mileage on that may vary depending on your experience, your memory. But I call it the forgotten era. We're talking about the Joe Casey run on on the Adventures of Superman from the early 2000s because it was never collected with the exception of issues that Casey wrote that were part of crossovers, like Return mm-hmm. to Krypton or Ending Battle, things like that, Our World's at War. But for the most part, his run remains uncollected and especially frustrating. It's almost entirely absent from the DC app. So, yeah. Um, in fact, I've got, there are two things I want to say about this. Uh, one of them is going to be something positive. One of them is going to be something negative. So let's go get the bad out of the way first. It's like, I got a real bone to pick with DC about their their archiving and their collection stuff because, you know, not only the Joe Casey stuff, but tons of stuff is just like, and they had trades for it. And they don't anymore. Um, but like the, you know, the, the pretty much the whole Loeb Ke- Kelly era, which was so definitive for um, guys of our generation, is just, obvi- except for those two City of Tomorrow trades and the Emperor Joker, like most of it is not is not collected. Our Worlds at War is still not back in print. Um, they only recently put like Young Justice back into print, finally, after after years of waiting for that. And it's it's frustrating, especially because, like you said, they don't have it on the app either. And you know, I as a creator myself, as a writer myself, I'm I don't like to advocate for piracy, but 
if you're not going to keep the stuff in print, what do you expect people to do? <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, I think that's I think that's a fair point. I mean, look, I've talked about this a lot on the show that there's a lot of Superman material that's not available that I feel should be. But for the most part, when I've been referring to that, it's been in the context more so of pre-crisis Superman. Mm -hmm. This this is really troubling to me because this is so much more recent, although I will say a little bit of a of a time warp shock as I was reading these and, and realizing just how old they are. Uh, they, yeah. <laughs> they are 20 plus years old at this point. And I ended up, I'll explain how I got here, but I ended up reading a lot of them in their original single issue print form. And, you know, it's a different experience, as you know, than reading in trade or reading on the app because you have all of the original ads. Mm -hmm. And man, you know, I'm seeing ads for Bulletproof Monk and Agent Cody Banks with Frankie Muniz. <laughs> And you've got the Angelina Jolie Tomb Raider Got Milk ad on the back of the books. Like it, it just, it took me totally back. But I just want to lay out for, for the audience real quick what we uh, took a look at as far as the specific issue numbers. So, and also just to put this in its context, you mentioned the, the Loeb Kelly era. And I've talked about it a lot on the show. Episodes two and three of this podcast were all about the Loeb Kelly era because you know, Death of Superman is always number one for me. And the, the mid-90s triangle era has a very special place in my heart. But the Loeb Kelly era, I was just the right, I was just the right age for it. So all of those stories, Y2K, Emperor Joker, Our Worlds at War, President Lex, that's a sweet spot for me. That's what I always come back to. That's like I'm home when I'm in that era. And so again, I thank you for coming on for this because it gave me an opportunity to go back to to this Casey run. So Casey came on toward the end toward the latter part of the, the Loeb Kelly era. Adventures of Superman had the most uh, changeover uh, creatively uh, during that time period. Uh, when Loeb and Kelly initially took over their respective books, Adventures was being co-written by Stuart Immonen and Mark Miller. Then they departed. J.M. DeMatteis took over for a little bit, and he was literally in the middle of an arc on Satanus when Joe Casey came on. So Casey's last couple of issues were really tidying up the storyline that the prior writer had started. Uh, which I left off of our reading list for this. I also left off any issues that were part of crossovers. So the issues that Casey did that were part of our Worlds at War, again, Ending Battle, Return to Krypton, I left those off. Uh, but it still gave us a total of, uh, I believe, 25 issues to read for this. So specifically, we read uh, Adventures of Superman uh, 590, 592, 596 to 605, 610, and 612 to 623. And... It, it drives me crazy because I owned these in single issue form when they came out. I read them when they came out. I bagged and boarded them. I put them in short boxes. They were part of my collection. And along the way, as I divested myself of a lot of my comics, it sadly included that run. And at the time, man, I never thought I would do a Superman podcast. I never thought I'd be looking for this stuff again. And, you know, the t time came and it had been on my mind. I knew, I knew it was... Um, something that I probably should talk about at some point. People had asked, not a ton of people, but there were at least a couple, including yourself. And the mm -hmm. timing on this, man, you don't even know is eerie because I was I was on eBay looking to see what was even out there. And I, I was not, I don't know that I was really ready to pull the trigger yet. And then you, you had like randomly messaged me about it. And I was like, <laughs> oh man, I'm like, I think this is a sign. I think I have to do it. So I ended up rebuying this era of Adventures of Superman. And what really kills me is I went into my eBay history back over a decade and uh, I sold this run 
for <laughs> oh, for thirty dollars, like over a decade ago, and I paid, including shipping, about fifty five to get it back. Now, now it could have been a lot worse. In fairness, it's not it's not a, a terrible price to pay, but it I, would have been worse if they were the exact same issues that you had originally sold. <laughs> I know that really would have added insult to injury, but in any event, so I ended up, there are a few issues uh, that are on the app, but again, uh, not, not a lot. They don't even have 600 anniversary Uh milestone issue, but whatever was on the app, I was able to read. And then I bought from 600 forward on, on eBay. But you know, if, if they hadn't been available on eBay or if it had been cost prohibitive, I mean, sad to say, yeah, I would have had to resort to piracy and it's, it's never my first choice. It's always something I would try to avoid, but Again, like you said, at a certain point, you, what other recourse do you have? Yeah, I mean, um, so, yeah, this run and a few things you were saying in there that I wanted to kind of uh, piggyback off of. Um, and it's funny that you said that I was the one who kind of got you to pull the trigger on this because this comes back to you actually in a circular way because you had done an episode and um, you were about to go on a hiatus and you said, hey, if you haven't checked out the back catalog, go ahead, go back and listen to some of those episodes. So I'm like, you know what? I got some time. I, I like to listen to podcasts when I'm when I'm working my art and whatnot. So uh, so I went back and I put and I put on some and I listened to the Loeb Kelly era, era and you would in passing, you had mentioned the Casey stuff. And I'm like, man, those Casey issues, I remember really liking those at the time. And then that's why I decided to to just kind of message you out of the blue. So this all kind of works roundabout. I love it. In the end, I only have myself to blame. I think that's mm-hmm. I think that's an important life lesson. I think that's something that I've I've encountered before and that we we can probably all identify with a lot of times. Yeah. <laughs> when you trace um, it all the way back, it starts with us. Yeah, this era was really kind of like my era of serious uh superman comic collecting because i had um i mean i had been like a kind of a superman when i was a kid like my parents had the superman the movie on vhs and i watched that damn tape so many times that it broke um we had the flesher cartoons uh you know i'd I'd watch you know the animated series and lois and clark and all that and then i got into my teen years when i really got into comic collecting and i went through that phase that a lot of teenage comic readers go through where they're like oh superman's so lame he and and uh, then, you know, when I was in high school, I um, that was when I met Bernie because he was my teacher and he was a huge Superman fan. And I was working at a comic book store at the time. And the Loeb Kelly stuff was all in the news because uh, they had just come on the book. It was being talked about in Wizard all the time. So I decided to give their stuff a try. And it really kind of brought me in, back into kind of made me rediscover like loving Superman. And and then when Casey came on, I was so excited because. And here's the positive thing I mentioned that I wanted to say earlier. I think Joe Casey is one of the most underrated writers in comics. And and with the whole thing about DC not collecting this, it, it's it's such an unfortunate trend with him because he keep his work keeps having the rug pulled out for under him. Uh, his stuff does not get collected as much. Um, but like he had done, you know, he had done an Uncanny X-Men more run uh, at the same time when Morrison was doing New X-Men which was unfairly, I think, maligned. And it would only, after years of the Morrison stuff being in print, they finally collected the Casey stuff in one big trade paperback. Um, And then he had done, and I don't know if you'd ever read any of his other stuff, but he had done an amazing work on Wildcats. And and again, not collected at all. Uh, He had also done a great job on on Mr. Majestic, which kind of was kind of like a precursor to him doing Superman. And 
and just like all this amazing stuff he had done, it just never really got the attention it needed. And then he kept getting shuffled off of books. His books kept getting canceled. And so he's just this writer who just keeps having this string of bad luck. And it's like, no wonder the guy ended up jumping to TV now. Yeah, it is. It, it is a tough thing and, and frustrating as, as if, you know, if you're a fan of his work as you are, and, and as I am, I would say, I've not read nearly as much as you have, but uh, this run, I can say I'm a fan of, and I can say that it, it held up. You also mentioned Bernie. He's, he's been on the show a bunch of times, Bernie Gersmeyer. Uh, so I, I love that connection uh, between mm -hmm. guests there. And yeah, I guess my first overall, you know, big picture question for you, because again, I know you had a lot of affection for this from reading it back in the day. I mean, big picture upon rereading it, did it hold up for you well? Um, you know, mostly, but in a different way than I expected. Because I don't know what, my memory of this was that it was a lot less action and it was a lot more like human interest type stories. And then rereading it, like like one, I think the, the issue that stood out the most for me, and I think I had kind of conflated most of his run with this issue, was um, the issue with the, the farmer, uh, 599. And I had thought, and also the, another one with, um, it was the end of the issue when he talks with uh, the kid Emilio. Uh, what issue was that? I got it here. Let's see. I have my stack in front of me and I know exactly what you're talking about. 610. 610. Yeah, that was it. And like those conversations, those little human interest moments, I kind of conflated in my mind. I thought that that was most of what these uh, these individual issues were. So going back, I was kind of surprised about um, like there was actually quite quite a bit more action than I had expected than I had remembered uh, in this run. And I'd also noticed that there are a lot of uh superman the movie references i mean i th you i think um and i remember i'd read an interview with casey fairly recently where he had uh talked about his affection for for superman the movie and you can really see that in a lot of these issues like there's um the issue when lex kind of well we can say whether or not he had actually lost his memory but he you know directly quotes gene hackman the the last laugh issue when um you know Lex is all jokerized and he and he does the who loves you baby thing. That was a bit of trivia. I'm not sure if you know this, but in the original script for Superman, the movie, when um, when the police officers are looking for for Lex Luthor, they were going to find uh, Telly Savalas in a cameo because he was bald at the time and he was going to. And that was like his catchphrase at the time. So that was kind of like a little reference to that, even like in um, the. Uh, the Ultraman arc when Superman uses the fortress, I noticed, and this is kind of an interesting thing that I noticed is that he's using like crystal technology, but it's not, it's not the same, exactly the same. It's kind of like in a weird way, it's almost like a molding of like the, the crystal technology from the Donner films, but also the kind of like, um, you know, the, the memory sticks, or I don't even know what to call it from like the man of steel films. And it was kind of like a, it, which is weird because this came out like 20 years before that, but it was kind of like this interesting melding of that. So I did notice there were a lot of, and the Lois and Clark, Lois and Superman reenacting in a way, the, the rooftop scene, all of that stuff comes straight out of Superman, the movie. So I thought that was really interesting to see. Um, another thing, and I had tried to look up this, uh, this blog post that Casey had written way back when he had first gotten this gig. And I had talked to you about it and um, it was something like, five things that Superman should never do and will never do as long as I'm writing the title. And it was, 
and I'm going completely off memory here because I scoured the internet. I used the Wayback Machine. I couldn't find a damn trace of this thing anywhere. I had asked on Reddit, nothing. Um, but I remember, and I remember some of them being like, one of them he said that Superman should not be, you, um, you know, stopping like regular criminals. Even Superman shouldn't be fighting uh, supervillains. Like he had a very kind of idea of an almost philosophical type Superman, and which. I'm not sure I agree with 100%. I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's a sci-fi superhero book, so you got to have some action in there. But I think when you're doing when you've got all these titles and in the Superman world and you're publishing all these different titles, there's room for something like that. I don't think that should be like the main Superman thing, but as this kind of like adjunct thing, I think it's a really cool um I think it's a really cool idea. And I and I like that it was these kind of smaller self-contained uh stories. Because one of the things I always found intimidating about the Superman books was in the Triangle era, where it was basically a weekly title. And that's cool if you're reading reading all the books all at once. But I like my whole feeling has always been if you're going to have multiple titles, they should each kind of have their own different flavor. Yeah, no, I appreciate you laying all that out. Real, I got I got to share a funny thing. So, you know, you mentioned scouring the Internet for that list. So I was doing my own research and I was just curious like what what was out there that was written or being said about this run. And, you know, I searched Google, I searched Reddit, I, I searched Twitter, Facebook, and I kept coming across your your requests for that list. <laughs> <laughs> and I so appreciated the the lengths that you went to. It was disheartening that no one no one stepped up to, you know, to offer any answer. But it was also like every time I was like, Oh, I found someone's talking about it, I'm like, oh, it's Perry. I was like <laughs> I guess that's, that's like the it it that's like continually whenever I'm talking about Casey stuff it's like just me shouting into the void. Yeah, which but again I guess that's telling about you know again about how why how and why you know this is like we say a forgotten run. But mm-hmm. as you're saying all of that, yeah, I agree. I, I definitely clocked a lot certainly of those uh, Superman the movie references. I think we had similar memories of this run because if I had to describe it, it's not the best word, but dull was kind of how I remembered mm. it. I definitely remembered it as being like a, a, a quieter, more somber period. Like it wasn't something that I really looked back and I was like, oh, I was, you know, there was nothing also sad to say. And this not, is not the case anymore after this reread, but looking right. back on it, there, I don't know that there was really much that I had ever looked back on and really remembered vividly or specifically like, oh, oh man, that, that issue or that arc from the Casey run. There was never really anything like it. I mean, there's a reason why I sold it back, you know, mm-hmm. back in the day. So that was that was my memory of it and what was in my head going in. And I ended up really enjoying this. Like I said before, it, it was great just to be back in this era. Uh, so there's there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, philosophical, I think, is a great word to, to describe it. I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff. I liked, to your point, I liked that these were all one, two, or three-part stories. That's it. Yeah. And even the three-parters, there were only a couple of them. I mean, these were almost all, you know, one or two-part stories, which I think does offer a nice change of pace from the the longer epics that we had had or, and that were going on in the other books. And that's the other thing. And I know you hit on this when you're talking about the Triangle Era. This really was an interesting moment in time for the Superman books because the Triangle numbers, uh, they were there at the beginning of Casey's run, but they were they were done away with very shortly after Our Worlds at War. Right. And even during the Loeb Kelly era, and I know I've talked about this before, that 
it didn't necessarily have that same cohesive feel as the 90s era did, right? Where you right. really felt like you were reading a weekly adventure. Even during the Loeb Kelly era, you had the triangle numbers and they certainly crossed over, but there were, there were, you know, there were stretches where you could read the books more or less independently. And I really couldn't say that so much about the, you know, the earlier triangle era. In any event, by the time our world's at war ends, a little after that, we dropped the triangle numbers, but we still have four Superman books. I mean, Man mm -hmm. of Steel would ultimately go away not too long after, but there's a good stretch where you've still got four books being published, but now they're really each doing their own thing and they can really carve out their own little corner. So yeah, if this were the only Superman book, is this necessarily the one that I would want? Probably not. But in a world no, where we have yeah. three or four monthly books, yeah, I think it's kind of interesting. So that was those are sort of my, I guess, uh, big picture takeaways. Yeah, I think Casey was just so over, and I think this is a problem when he's doing a lot of these times. This is the same problem he had with X-Men. He was so overshadowed by Morrison. Um, and here he was so overshadowed by Loeb and Kelly, I think. And because, you know, you had um, Loeb was, I think, probably the biggest name on the books at the time. And, you know, he had just come off of, you know, Long Halloween and um, and I'm not sure if Hush came before or after this, but it was around that same. Either way, he was a huge name in the comics at the time. Um, and this was when Smallville came out, which he was also working on that, too. And in Kelly wasn't as big, but he had a lot of he had a lot of cred to his name. Right. And his um, and he was after this, he had gone on to JLA. So he had started to make a bigger name for himself on that. And then you had, um, it's funny that you say Man of Steel was the first one to kind of get the X. That was actually the first one I asked for my pull list because I, and I haven't read those issues in years, so I might have a different of opinion of them now. But I remember at the time, just not really, what Mark Schultz was doing just wasn't really appealing to me. So when it came to the time to make some decisions and the fact that they had started in this era, reducing the triangle stuff and only kind of crossing over for big stories like return to krypton and uh i think infection was another one or critical condition or whatever it was other than that they had mostly just they had mostly been these kind of self-contained in each individual title so man of steel was the first one that i had asked for my pull list and then i had only picked it up when it was participating in crossovers um but yeah i mean it's just it got so overshadowed and it's 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 really nice going back and looking at it, and there's a lot of social commentary type stuff I notice, and a lot of it is actually some of the stuff is dated, right? Some of the language is dated in this, um, but there's also a lot of stuff that I found you know pretty prescient actually for what kind of stuff that we're dealing with even today still. This episode made possible by educator, hobby comic book collector, and pop culture enthusiast Sam Lim. Sam is moving to the South Jersey area and looking to connect with other comics fans as well as retailers. They are also looking for their new local comic shop, so recommendations are welcome. Be sure to follow Sam on Instagram at SZLComics. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full-service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina for people of all ages and walks of life. Since 1983, this nine-time Eisner Award nominee uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material available. They pride themselves on their significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available to anyone, anywhere, via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the AcmeCast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Film lovers and filmmakers, 
should check out this family of film festivals, Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. I was fortunate enough to have my work shown at these festivals, and I found them to be very enjoyable and well-run events. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals generally, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news and updates about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, be sure to listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and currently under new ownership, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany the next time you're in the Garden State, and be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Flat Squirrel Productions is an affiliate of BCW Supplies. The next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP, that's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions, to save 10% on your order, and it helps support the show. Thank you. All Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join All Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit AllYeahComics.com and follow All Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Aw, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, and when we talk about President Lax, and we've definitely talked about that a lot on the show, the, you know, the, the comparisons to Trump are, are right there, right? And, mm-hmm. and even going back to, you know, Burns' reinvention of the character post-crisis, clearly Trump was, was a model for the character, that right. evil businessman version. But again, it's... As, as we've lived through these past few years, you know, you look back on those President Lex storyline, the stories, and, you know, you really see a lot of connection points. And there are a few things in particular that that occurred during the Casey run that it's like, oh, man, like, you know, yeah, you talk about like a crystal ball. It was kind of nuts. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, even know, the 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 last laugh issue he even talks about presidential harassment, which is something that Trump would start saying. Well, and in that very issue. So this was during the like you said, this was a crossover or tie in issue to Joker's last laugh where all the villains mm-hmm. of the DCU get Jokerized, including Lex. And one of the things he does that's so crazy, that's considered so crazy is he starts his reelection campaign, mm-hmm. you know, very early on into his first term. And as I, you know, at the time, I, I, I didn't bat an eye at that. Right. But now I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, like we lived through a case where <laughs> our last president was out, you know, having these rallies, you know, very early on in, in, in his tenure. So, you know, stuff like and that. And how weird is it that at the time they thought, well, what can we do to make it seem that Lex is crazy? We'll have him start his presidential campaign early and talk and whine about presidential harassment. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I mean, oh, there's man, what a different era. I, I will say, as far as what I really consider to be the strengths of of these issues, there was there was a lot of really good, interesting uh, Lex uh, Lex uh-huh. stuff, uh, both with respect to the character generally, and also in the context as the president. Like I, that was one of the things I had forgotten. There were some really good Lex President Luther stories in here that I'm like, oh man, like I, I 
because I do love I love that version of the character and that period of time. And, you know, you get some issues here where you just kind of get to see not even so much like the day to day, but it's not the the huge scope and scale that we would get in the Superman, Batman, public enemies. Right. Like you really just kind of get to see some smaller scale stories with that. Um, So I really appreciated that. And then there was uh, there was one issue, the um, 619 when the candidate comes in. And there's this great monologue where Lex is doing the narration and he's talking about, and this is also kind of interesting. I noticed here that I picked up on because he says I was born to power. Now, you know, in the post-crisis, which I'm sure most of your listeners already know about Lex was born in suicide slum. And then he had, you know, killed his parents for the insurance money and used that insurance money to fund um, his, to fund Lex Corp as a startup. So when he said I was born to power, I thought that was a really interesting line because this was around the same time that Smallville was coming out. And I'm doing a rewatch of Smallville right now, partly because of you always mentioning on the show. So you kind of like <laughs> memory warmed it to me and partly because uh, Welling and Rosenbaum are now doing uh, the Talkville podcast. And so it, it's kind of funny to, that these things all coincide together, like my, you know, my teenage Superman years coming back <laughs> to haunt me in a way. Uh but he mentions I was born to power, and I was kind of wondering, because this was before Birthright. It was, like, right before Birthright. And I think at this point, they were kind of beginning to – they had to have been working out, like, Birthright, like, planning it out. And I know there was some discussion about, you know, Lex and Clark having a relationship in the past. And I wonder if Casey put that in because of – if he just put it in as, like, a metaphor, I was born to power, as, like, a, a philosophical type thing – or if he was putting it in kind of like at a little thing, okay, we're going to kind of work in the Rosenbaum Lex Luthor into continuity. Here. I mean, that's a good question. That line jumped out at me as well. And that didn't feel like it, like it fit. I, I, I took it in, in more of a metaphorical sense. Like you said, mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, that's an interesting question, whether or not he was kind of looking ahead to, to what they were talking about doing. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I think that's the only thing, if we're really going to take it literally, I think that's the only thing that would mm-hmm. make sense because right in this era, he, he was born, to poverty and suicide slum. So, so yeah, that's, that's hard to say. What, what stood out to me also about that scene was in, in Lex's narration, he's, he's bored. Yes. That was the thing I was going to mention too. Yeah. The tedium of the, the day to day uh, of being president. And I, I thought that was just such a great bit and, and offered insight into his character. And I don't know if you ever watched the FX series, the shield a uh, long time ago, but it's so like my memories are very vague. I mean, it's an old show, uh, so maybe we're beyond the point of needing to issue a spoiler warning, but I'll, I'll just, I'll try to keep this vague. But by the end of the show, <laughs> the, the, you know, the main character gets his comeuppance and it's, it's not entirely dissimilar from, from Lex's situation. Like he's taken from the environment in which mm. he's been able to really run amok and is now confined, but it's not prison. It's it's a mm-hmm. different sort of environment, and that's that's what it made me think of. Uh, so it was so, and again, like that's an aspect of this that I don't, I can't remember if that was necessarily touched on in any of the other President Lex stories. But it's just like, yeah, like he's like he's kind of bored <laughs> in this. Yeah, I like that. That was such a great moment, too. and it also ties in with the the earlier issue when he, you know loses his memory because there's a thing at the end where it seems like maybe he didn't um and it it it's it's such a it for me it reminded me of superman too 
right? That scene when they're in the White House and Ursa's just like, you know, you are Lord of all you survey. And Zod's just so bored. And he's just like, as I was the day yesterday and the day before that and the day before that, he's just like, and it's like, you know, ruling the world is so fucking boring because there's no challenge now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that, so that issue that you're, you're referencing is uh, Adventure 600. So the big anniversary mm. issue. And in that Lex is missing, we find out that this, this woman had kissed him at a rally. And what we find out later is that she slipped him this nanite that ended up being inert, but was like lodged in his brain and was causing personality shift and memory loss. And so he's out right. there with a wig, calling himself Alex Luther and operating as, as kind of like a fight club, Tyler Durden-esque social anarchist, like mm -hmm. trying to take down the corporate machine, uh, not with realizing- the that always looks like it's falling off. Right, not reali realizing that He's he's the one he's actually fighting against. And, you know, ultimately, Talia, who is running LexCorp at the time, is able to bring in Lena. I think this might be one of Lena's final appearances, if not her final appearance, baby Lena. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I remember you. I remember you mentioning that on a uh, I think either on Twitter or on another episode. And um, I didn't really think about it as I was reading these issues because I didn't have the larger context. But um, but yeah, this may have been one of her last appearances because. And, you know, I think the whole the whole thing with President Lex is, did you get a sense that Casey was trying to build to something like a different way of how to take down Lex? Because it seemed like there was a lot more with like Clark and Perry doing stuff together. Yes. And, I want to I circle back to that because that was one of the okay. other big, that was actually a big takeaway that I had from this. So, uh, yes. So I'm, I'm with you. The last thing I just want to say about 600 was. Uh, you know, so eventually Talia is able to get through to Lex using using Lena. And then, like you said, we get this scene at the end where he's back in the Oval Office and he's expressing frustration. He's like, I was free. Mm -hmm. I was free. So it's like, yeah, whether he, you know, still remembered who he was or or even if he didn't, now that he's back, like he remembers that freedom and, and he, you know, he, he longs for that. It was, again, there was some interesting, especially having done my Lex deep dive not too long ago on the show. Uh, it was really cool to get some of those, to get some of those stories. Now, like you were saying, uh, and this uh, points to issue 610, which you had mentioned before, where Clark goes undercover with these miners under the direction of Perry. Because this is the point in time, people might remember, at the end of Loeb's run on the Superman titles, Clark Kent is quote-unquote fired from the Daily Planet. As far as everyone is concerned, he's fired. And then in the final pages, we find out that it was it was all for show, and he's actually working undercover with Perry to try to take President Lex down. And I, re I remember having reread the Loeb Kelly era and then having reread Superman, Batman. One of my frustrations was we never really saw that followed up on this whole undercover reporter thing. And then I open up 610 <laughs> and you have Clark and Perry at this, you know, dumpy diner in the middle of the night, you know, having this clandestine meeting and Perry giving him this assignment to go undercover with these miners who are working for a company that might be working on the under the direction of Lex. And I'm like, this is it. Like, this is what I mm -hmm. had wanted to see. It was great for one issue. Was, but <laughs> Yeah, that's that's such. And I love seeing this idea of of Clark as investigative reporter, because, you know, my whole interpretation of the of the Clark Kent identity is it works best if he's if he's kind of like the ultimate wallflower, because if you have him kind of like the um, I think if you have him like the man of action, John Byrne, George Reeves type. I think he's drawing too much attention to himself. Whereas I think that if you're the Christopher Reeve type, you know, the bumbling, the bumbling, uh, mild mannered reporter, first off, you're questioning, how did this guy get a job at a newspaper to begin with? And second, it's like, that draws even more attention to himself. 
And I love this idea. And I think, and Mark Wade was when it really kind of first stood out to me. And also Brandon Routh in Superman Returns, where Clark's just always kind of in the background. Nobody notices him. And that's like the perfect quality for an investigative reporter. I agree. I think that's the sweet spot for the character. That's always, as much as I like, I mean, at this point I can say I like almost all of the other interpretations, mm-hmm. but I think in terms of what, what I like best and what I think works most effectively and makes the most sense. I do think it is that truly mild manner, like wallflower version of the character, mm-hmm. not drawing too much attention to himself either way. Uh, so it was great. And so you got to see Clark undercover as Jonathan Clark. Uh, and he's going mm-hmm. out for beers with these miners and a couple of them are going to get in a brawl and he kind of makes peace. And with also them. he's uh do you notice he was wearing the, the Smallville color scheme outfits? Yes. Yeah. That's <laughs> when he intervenes and those two guys who are going to go at it. Yeah. You see the blue shirt, red jacket. And, and, you know, he has this conversation with like one of the miners who talks about how, uh, you know, basically what has Superman ever done for us? He mostly just brings problems to our planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when there's later a cave in and, and, you know, he reveals himself as Superman, the guy's like, oh, like, I'm so sorry. But Clark is like, no, it's OK. Like you were being honest. I, I, I can appreciate that. Yeah. Um, and then he reads um, a letter from uh, from someone whose whose mother is dying in, in South America and, and he goes to offer some comfort there. Did you find not to harp on this one issue, but did you find like the, the, that track, I guess, with this idea of him having a a personal connection or making a personal difference in someone's life. Cause it sort of felt like we had this somewhat odd detour or divergence from the story that it, we were reading. No, I love that scene with Emilio, but you're right. It doesn't quite fit into the same context of the rest of that issue. So I remember reading it and even, you know, I had read these issues a few weeks ago uh, and then I just kind of browsed through them again. And just in the few weeks that had passed, I had thought that that was a completely separate issue. And I go back and I reread it. I'm like, oh, wow, this isn't the same issue. It feels like a backup story or something like that. It doesn't feel connected to the main story. Um, And I'm not sure, like, because I do get the sense that Casey may have had some push and pull with editorial. So maybe he had intended this to be a longer issue. And then then they were told him, like, you've had too many quiet issues. You need to have more action. And so then he probably tried, maybe he tried to work it. I don't know. Um, But whatever the case. Yeah, it, it feels out of context, um, even though as much as I love that conversation with him. And and that's that's what I love. I love that. Um, this is where I'm going to piss you off, because I know you love uh, Zack Snyder Superman. But I felt that like that scene in um, Batman v Superman, when all the people are just kind of like surrounding him and they're like almost kind of like worshiping him. And he's just he seems almost to me, he felt almost kind of disconnected in that scene. And I like it more when Superman interacts with people. Like one of my favorite moments from um, uh, Supergirl is when her, when Superman first appears and they, you know, they save these people and then, and then they're like, um, and then Supergirl's like, do I usually like to go talk to people afterwards? Like, yeah, I do too. And, you know, he's just very kind of casual and he's very kind of friendly with them. That's kind of like, and earn the first episode of Superman and Lois, when the kid says, I like your costume, he says, thanks, my mom made it for me. I love that version of Superman, the one who's just kind of like he al- he's always able to to make time to kind of to to be among the people in a way. Yeah, no, fair enough. I like I like that version, too. It's all good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but something else I noticed, too, and this just may be me reading into things. But when Perry gives Clark the letters to Superman, he says, you'll probably see him. Did you get the sense that maybe Perry knows he's Superman and is just like not saying anything? Because I it kind of felt to me very much like the the Robbie Robertson and Spider-Man thing where it's like he knows, but he knows that this is a story that's not worth telling. So he's going to sit on it. I mean, that's forever been my interpretation of Perry White. 
And it always mm-hmm. goes, I know I've said this on the show before, but it always goes back to Loeb's issue of Hush, where Bruce visits the Daily Planet. And oh, we, right, we hear yeah, Bruce's yeah. narration and he's talking about Perry and he's like, you know, Perry's too good of a reporter not to know that Clark is Superman. But then that makes me think of Jim Gordon and he's too good of a detective to not. And I look at both of those characters. And again, I don't think, I don't think this bears out. I don't think that, you know, you, this is a, an accurate reading based on what's presented, but in my mind and in my heart, both of those guys know, but yeah, they're just, you know, they're just kind of cool about it. I mean, especially in the case of Superman, we've had stories where the identity has mm. been revealed and it, it is news to Perry. So, you know, that knocks my theory out of the water. But like I said, uh, in my, in my, in my internal uh, view of it. Yeah. I think he knows. And I, I think I, so too, I yeah. wish, I wish he, he did. I, I mean, I, I, you know, whatever, but, uh, yeah, there might be something to that, uh, you know, that, that, uh, you know, you'll, you'll probably see him before I do wink, wink. So, <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's one of the things about it is these, these guys, they, and that's one of the things I love that I actually did like about Man of Steel was the fact that Lois is able to figure out that he's, you know, this, you know, this not before Superman, Superman type of thing. Um, and I, I think it it does kind of undermine Perry and Lois's abilities a bit if they're not able to to figure it out. And same thing with there was a great issue of um, I think it was the officer down storyline in the Batman books when Jim Gordon gets shot. And at the end of it, Batman goes to him and he's about to reveal his identity and, and Gordon tells him to stop. And he says, what makes you think I, and he just says this line, he doesn't follow up on it, but he says, what makes you think I haven't already figured it out? So that was no man's land. That was legends of the dark Knight, 125. And I say that with specificity because that was, that's the storyline that got me into Batman. And that's my favorite issue from that storyline. It it sums up their whole relationship. It's a great encapsulation of it. And yeah, I, so I I know exactly the scene that you're talking about Mm -hmm. and that always stuck with me as well, but at least for this one issue, it was cool to see Perry and Clark working behind the scenes and to see Clark go undercover. Again, there's really never any payoff to it. And one thing that I, I was, was having a hard time figuring out was later on in Casey's run, Clark is back working at the Daily Planet, but Lex is still president. And I always remembered it as he returns after Lex is finally taken down in the Superman, Batman, Public Enemies arc. I was not remembering any period of time where Lex is still president, but Clark is back in the office. What do you remember? No, that's a, that's a good point. That jumped out to me too. And I just thought I was maybe missing some larger context. And I thought maybe that this had played out in, in, you know, in either Superman or action comics. And that maybe I just didn't remember because this, the end of this era and the era when those issues came out, that was actually during this brief period when I had stepped away from buying uh, single issues and so I, I had kind of switched over to trade mode at that point. And so the, the Superman books, like we'd mentioned, they weren't really being collected. So those had kind of fallen by the wayside for me. And so I just thought I, there was this, this larger story that I just didn't read that it, in another book. You know, audience, if you're remembering something that we're not, please let me know. But uh, I, I think this doesn't quite line up unless, again, I, I'm really missing something. But in any event, as far as... Our, again, our core cast is concerned with with Lois and Clark. This run catches them at kind of an interesting time. So post Our Worlds at War, if people remember, during that storyline, uh, General Sam Lane died and Superman wasn't there to save him. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the, the death of her father, coupled with her husband's inability to save him when he's saving everyone else, did put a little bit of a strain. And Lois ends up taking a leave from the Daily Planet and going on this this global trip with her mother. And so, and you see that here where, you know, they'll sort of have these meetups in, in Rome or wherever else. Um, 
I, I, for the most part, like I enjoyed the dynamic here. There was one issue that really made me think of Superman and Lois where, you know, they talk about how Clark is always listening for her. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I think it's later in that issue where she's like, I need a little, I know this is going to sound terrible, but I need a little space. Like I know you're always listening and it makes me feel so safe, but I think maybe you need to not listen for a little while. And that goes yeah. right back to, you know, to the first season of Superman and Lois. There's a whole episode about how, you know, the boys realized Clark was always listening in on them and, you know, understandably felt a certain way about it. I mean, that, and again, this came so many years earlier. I, I, I enjoyed that piece of it. And I think that was, uh, you know, felt like a realistic development in this, you know, uh, you know, larger than life scenario. One of the things I love about Superman and Lois is that it presents their marriage in a very mature, real world way, right? It's, you know, he's got to go off. And I th- one of my favorite moments of this is when she asks him to be at the town hall for her. And then he's got to go off, do Superman. I can't remember what it was exactly, but some sort of Superman stuff. And he comes back and he's like, he's like, I'm so sorry, but there was this thing. And she's like, and, you know, she's like, look, I know you had to do this. I know that I can't be mad about it because you were saving people's lives. And logically, I know that, but emotionally, I'm still pissed off. So I just need a minute. And I loved how mature they had handled that. And just like that dynamic between those two characters, I think is done so well. And reading these issues really kind of reminded me of that. And I, and I don't know if they're pulling anything from this, but um, it, or if it's just, you know, you know, serendipitous, but whatever the case, I, I did love that they have this very kind of mature relationship where they have these, she's got these emotions that she's dealing with and she knows logically that she can't blame Superman for it, but, it's still a struggle for it. I love, I love how they're dealing with that as opposed to, I think a lesser writer would have just written her off as being mad. And, and it would have kind of put the reader into the situation of kind of thinking like, you know, well, you know, he's Superman. Why are you being so mad at him? And so I like it where it's, they, they present it in a way where there's, it's a lot more gray. There's not a, a right and a wrong here. I agree. And I, Especially now, and I think maybe this is a reason why it's better to read this run for me now as, as an adult and, and as a husband, because as a kid, I, you know, I don't know how, how well that necessarily landed or how much that really registered mm-hmm. with me. And, you know, I think back to the Loeb stuff from, you know, a couple of years earlier, which I love, but, you know, one, one of the big developments in that run early on was, you know, this, this out of nowhere tension from Lois towards Clark. And then we find out that she's been replaced by the parasite mm-hmm. and, you know, it's, it's a memorable storyline and you know, that led to critical condition and you know, they, they got a lot of mileage out of it, but it's not, it, you know, it's nothing genuine between them, in, you know, in, in their relationship, the way you get right. here. So, and then even in, in Casey's final issue where they uh, you know, they're having this, this conversation throughout the whole issue and Clark is uh, regaling her with some of the adventures that he's had. And, you know, they really have a heart to heart and he talks about how he feels selfish sometimes mm-hmm. right for for wanting the world uh or for wanting people to see the world the way he does and and for wanting to be with lois so much for putting her above other people and and she says she feels selfish too because she knows that she has to share him with the world and that's not always easy and it, it i i really do i agree with you i like the way the relationship is depicted in these issues because i think that well you know when you talk about i mean any comic characters being married but especially you know, superman and lois mm-hmm. so it's one of those things like well does it you know, does it kill the tension? Is it hard to, you know, find stories to, you know, to kind of put them through? And I think this does a good job. Like I'm at no point in this run was I like, oh, 
they're going to get a divorce. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. you, you know, they're together, you know, they're, they're committed to each other, but they, they can still have issues, but they work through it. I, I like the way this came across here. Yeah, same here. Although um, with the whole divorce thing, it's kind of funny because the issue right before this ends on the cliffhanger with Superman saying we need to talk. Right. <laughs> that's those are like that's the sentence you never want to hear your significant <laughs> other say. Um, so reading that, I'm just like, man, if I was reading these in single issues at the time, I would have been so freaked out that they're going to get it, that they're going to split them up. Because I remember that was kind of I think that was kind of the scuttlebutt at the time. Like, are they going to break up Lois and Superman? If I'm remembering correctly from the you know fan discussions and whatnot. Um, or maybe I'm thinking a, a few years ahead. Um, but yeah, something else too is I love the issue when uh, going back to the Canada issue, when they they're like competing with each other. And <laughs> I love this pair, this line from Perry where he says um, he's like, you two have the strangest foreplay. Yeah. Yeah, and, for sure. And it makes so much sense though, because in this post-crisis realm, like Lois fell in love with Clark because, because she admired him as a reporter because they were competing for stories and all that. So it kind of makes sense that they want to, in a sense, role play that old rivalry. And there is that sexy, playful quality. You see it in that scene mm-hmm. and their their Valentine Day, you know, rendezvous where they make sure that they you know, are able to mm-hmm. to spend the night together. So, yeah, I think you do get a good a good balance as again, we're catching Lois at, you know, at, at, a, at a weird time for her in terms of what she's going through. Uh, going back to the the Superman and Lex of it all, uh, I really liked, again, going back to Adventure 600 when, when Lex is missing and he's having this mm-hmm. adventure as, as Alex Luthor, the, the moral dilemma that it presents for Superman. It's like, look, we, you know, we all know eventually he's going to save Lex, but the fact that he even wrestles with it because, and this goes back to everything that we talked about with respect to Lex becoming president you know, Superman really felt betrayed. You know, he put his mm-hmm. trust in the in the people and they elected someone who he knows to be a villain. And now he maybe has an opportunity to not have to deal with Lex as president anymore by really just not doing anything. Uh, right, yeah. And, you know, and again, of course, he, he's he's not going to, you know, let that stand and, and he will intervene and, and get Lex back where he needs to go. But I appreciated the, the, the dilemma that it created for him and the fact that, you know, it was even something that he thought about. Yeah. Um, and speaking too about the Clark Lex relationship, that um, in uh, six fourteen, when uh, the Heroville uh, issue, the, the beginning of that story arc, when Batman calls him up at night, and he's got this news about uh, about Lex, and uh, bringing up this line here, because and this is this is also this is a reference to something that was happening in the other books, because he says um, Batman says you know. They, they talk about the fact that Lex knows his secret identity yep. and Superman says, you know, he hasn't acted on it yet and he wants me to sweat it out. Um, and then this great line from from Clark, he hates me. I don't hate him. And then Batman says, I'll pretend I didn't hear that. Yeah. Yeah, I like I mean, look, I I wish that that period had been able to play out longer where, where Lex knew it. It ended up being such a, mm-hmm. such a brief moment in time. But yeah, I like that this was at least referenced and that it accounted for, you know, wh- why Clark would be as perturbed as he was when he was, you know, woken in the middle of the night, you know, before he realizes it's Batman, it's like, Oh, is this Lex finally making his move? Mm-hmm. And even going back to Casey's first, like full on issue in his run here, five ninety. So again, he came on before he was cleaning up the prior storyline. And then uh, 590, I think, is it called Don't Cry For Me, Bialia? Is that the one? Yeah, yeah. 
where there's this journalist, supposed journalist, who's been uh, taken hostage uh, by the dictator in, in Bialya. And, and Lex summons Superman to the White House and directs him to go get this guy. And this is, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, part of me is like, if I were to give one issue from this run to someone, it, it, it might be this one. I don't know. I'd have to give that a little bit more thought. But at least when we talk about the President Luther of it all, like, I really felt like mm. this was a great encapsulation of. You know, of course, Superman doesn't want Lex to be president, but, you know, why specifically? Well, like, this is a perfect example because, mm-hmm. you know, here you have the leader of the free world, someone who, someone in a position that Superman would historically, you know, uh, at least <laughs> respect and, you know, try to accommodate, try to work with, you know, giving him this order. And so it's like, even if, and it puts him in such a tough spot because, you know, this this is an American, or even regardless of the fact that it's an American, it's a person, right, who's been taken, who's mm. in trouble. So, of course, Superman wants to help, but then it's coming from Lex. So what's the agenda? What's the catch? And I think even that aside, it's like he's never going to want to do something that Lex asks him or tells him to do. Right. Well, something else, too. And there are two things. I Like, when I was reading this issue, I, I thought, I'm like, oh, this must be a parallel to Iraq. And then I looked up. This came out before 9-11. So talking about being prescient. Well, on that. Um, but, yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, but also, the even, like, what happens when, you know, he's there's this situation where this guy is going to kill a dictator, right? So, again, on the surface, this is kind of like with the whole thing with, you know, him saving Lex in 600. You know, it... It again, it shows how far Superman is willing to go to preserve his his ethics and his morality where, you know, he's like, I'm not going to to let you kill this man, even though arguably maybe the world would be a better place. But then you're setting another bad precedent, too, if you're going to allow, you know, Luther to kill whoever he wants. So I did like that, those kind of moral quandaries. And I think that's. I think I think you'll you'll agree with me. This one of the things that frustrates me about a lot of the Superman discourse is when they say he's too boring. You can't challenge him because he's too powerful. And my whole thing is always, well, no, you don't challenge. Okay, yeah, you can give him physical challenges, but what makes him what makes the most interesting so- Superman stories to me? And I was just listening to your New Fifty Two episode, so I think uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna annoy V Ken by being one of those guys who says I like when Superman uses his head, but. But I do like when you put Superman in these moral quandaries and that's how he has to figure out a way out. And you have to challenge his his beliefs because, you know, always challenging him with physical confrontation. Yeah, it's fun to watch Superman punch someone out, but it's more interesting to me when you're challenging him on this kind of personal level. Yeah, I mean, look, I I like all kinds, right, of Superman stories. And going back Mm. to New 52, it's like, yeah, that was... Uh, you know, maybe a more f- physical, at least initially, <laughs> version of the right. character. But, yeah, no, I mean, like, the 590 in particular is, is is especially interesting, I think, because Superman makes such a point while he's there of making it clear to the leader of that country that he's not here on behalf of the United States government. Like, there's a, a person in trouble, and that's why he's there. Like, he wants to make it mm-hmm. really clear, I'm not President Luther's puppet. But, and again, this shows the genius of Lex, because seems pretty clear right Lex anticipated that he would do that because the journalist is actually uh, you know that's his cover right and he's the CIA Mm -hmm. operative and he tries to take out the dictator so you know there were a lot of good there were a lot of good turns in that issue Casey also utilized in that issue and his final issue and I thought he did it more he maybe he did in some of the our worlds at war stuff as well he might have 
but this uh, the device of in terms of the panel layouts of having all of your your dialogue like on the left or right side of the page. Yeah, there was some of that in in. Uh... No, it was more like the art in 600 with like some of the recaps and stuff. And I and yeah, and the last issue too, are, that struck out at me as well. Um, it was an interesting format. I think it's having done some comic book work myself, both on the writing and the lettering side. I wonder how much of that is just like, damn, I got so much stuff I got to fit in the panels. And I know it won't fit in the panels. I suspect it might be that because you know who else I remember doing that a, a decent amount? Bendis. I remember reading Alias issues and he mm-hmm. he did stuff like that as well. Now, on the note of the art, and I am so sorry that we are like almost an hour into this. We haven't mentioned the artist that he worked on th- this with, and it's notable in, in a couple of respects. So the artist on Casey's uh, initial issues uh, th- through issue 600 was the late, great Mike Waringo. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm such a fan of his work, and it was such a joy uh, to go back and, and look at some of this. And not to... Not to dwell on this, but that's one of the other reasons why it's so frustrating to me that this has never been collected because if nothing else, you know, but yeah, it'd be great to get a run of trades or an omnibus of like the Joe Casey adventures of Superman. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how likely that is, but a single trade paperback of, of the art of Mike Waringo on Superman, it's a relatively short run. And, uh, I, I think, I don't know. I feel like people would appreciate it, but it was such a joy to see his art. Now, I don't know how to pronounce the name of the artist who, who took over later on is Derek. Do you know? A coin or something coin, like that. I, we probably might be butchering it, but we'll, we'll yeah. go with that. But what was what struck me in reading this run was their styles are very different. I mean, Waringo mm-hmm. is you know really bubbly and 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 really pops, and uh, the, the the latter artist's work is definitely feels like darker and moodier, and so it gave the 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 stories a, a different air to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, where I, like I wonder if Waringo had stayed on. Uh, you know, for the rest of the run, uh, you know, what what feel it would have had, what what mood, but especially as an artist yourself, I mean, what did you think about about them and especially the, you know, the the contrast in their styles? So one thing about Ringo, and I love his art, although one of the things that was kind of annoyed me is that it, for me, at least, I think he draws the legs too short. <laughs> so I'm watching it. I'm just like, Clark looks like a guy, like a like a kid wearing his dad's suit kind of <laughs> in a way. But that's just a one thing. Um I do love his art in general, though, and I thought his his work on Fantastic Four with Mark Wade was absolutely brilliant. Um, but one of the things I liked about the um, the Acoin issues is that I think it kind of suited the types of stories that Casey was telling a little bit better. Um, and also, I just kind of I've got a personal preference for like the more slimmed down version of Superman. I'm not as big of a fan of a much more muscular Superman. I like him more when he's more of like got like more of a swimmer's build type because um, the the for me, the powers not, doesn't come from his physical muscles. It comes from the solar energy. So I always like that aspect of it when artists draw him in more of that kind of Kurt Swan style. Um, another artist that I thought was really interesting is um, the guy who did the mirror mirror arc. And that is um, got his name right here. Carlos Meglia. Like this is this was this very exaggerated cartoony style. And I don't know, I really kind of liked that as a change. And I thought it was it was fun to use that for this art where you've got this brainiac baby. I thought that that was an example of an art style that normally wouldn't fit in with the type of stories Casey's telling, but it kind of worked with this specific storyline. So I'm glad you enjoyed it, and uh, that that <laughs> um, that artist who I looked him up sadly he passed away as well. Oh really? Okay. But 
so I, I, you know, I hate to say this. It was not a style that I responded to. Mm. And that three part arc became more of a skim for me. And I remember, I remember them from back in the day as well. Uh, so yeah, unfortunately I wasn't, I wasn't really into, into that three parter. Although I did think it was cool. You know, this dealt with the earth Two, uh, you know, crime syndicate versions of the character that Morrison mm. quietly had just utilized in their earth Two graphic novel. Uh, so I did think that was cool that those characters were utilized, but again, just going back to Waringo for a second, I, yeah, I think when people think of his work, understandably, they go to Fantastic Four, they go to Flash, they go to some other stuff. I do feel like this is one of those, again, not to keep going back to this word, but forgotten. You know, I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, how quickly people think of this. So I, I do, I do wish that it would get a spotlight because it's, it's some really great stuff in there. I mean, uh, Casey's, like the second Casey issue that we read, 592, is this really fun one-off, like right before all the heavy Our Worlds at War stuff where Jimmy Olsen gets sucked into a video game and that character, Strange Visitor, I don't know if anyone even remembers mm-hmm. Strange Visitor, uh, but she had electrical powers and they gave her a leftover uh, containment suit that Superman had worn when he had electric right. powers. So it was a way to sort of carry on that version of the character. But anyway, you know, they end up stuck in the video game and uh, yeah, I don't know. It was just like a fun, just a fun one-off. And that was an, an instance where I think the Waringo art was, a, you know, a, a perfect fit for, for a story like that. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it felt very much like a throwback to those old Silver Age uh, Jimmy Olsen issues where it's, you know, Jimmy getting involved in, in some wacky adventure. So I thought that that was kind of a, it was a cool thing. Like I'm not, I've never read those issues, so I don't, have any affinity for for them or anything, but I could see what what Casey and Waringo were trying to do there. Um, but I also loved the um, the first issue where he was kind of like the or at least the post Worlds at War in five ninety six when um, this whole question about how much should Superman do? You know, like he he's overseeing the rebuilding and and Lex is chastising for it him for it and he's like you know you could do all you could fix all this in like this in like the blink of an eye and you're not doing anything and then the and then the worker who comes in and he's like he's like no i don't want superman doing my job for me i'm like i'm glad that he's here to help us when we can't do something but otherwise you know what i i want to be able to do my own thing too i want to be able to i thought that was such a great example of um you know that that idea that you know eternal quandary of how much should superman do yeah, so that issue five ninety six, I you know, that's a very powerful issue. And going back to this idea of a philosophical take on the character, it definitely gets at at those ideas. And you know, just like this run catches Lois at a at a tough point after the death of her father, you know, immediately post our worlds at war, Pa Kent is missing. You know, he's missing for a little while, uh, and he's eventually found, and he's okay. But uh, you know, again, it's it's a tough time for Clark, and you know, they've they've lost. Uh, you know, Hippolyta passed, you know, she fell in battle during our worlds at war. You know, I think Arthur was missing as well. So it was a tough time for the DC universe, but in the real world, I mean, this was so crazy. So this issue came out on September 12th, 2001. Holy shit. I didn't even realize that. And I, I don't know that I would have clocked it, but for the fact that I was reading this on the app. So these were the mm-hmm. earlier issues that happened to be on the app. And there's a note, there's a warning. It says like, please note, this was released on September 12th and it contains image imagery shockingly similar to the destruction of the World Trade Center. And, you know, in the opening pages, you see the LexCorp towers, mm-hmm. you know, sort of shattered and, and smoking. And, you know, I appreciated that note because, you know, as I was reading, I was like, oh my God, like how, and, 
I mean, I was buying the books at the time. I just, I don't remember specifically that, that issue. But as I was sitting there now, it's like, oh my God, can you imagine like opening that up the day after and seeing that? And then, like I said, the rest of the issues I, I was reading in, in the, their physical print form. So I have the letters pages. Mm-hmm. So you get a few months later, you see the letters about that. And so, and that again, like I said, the whole time warp aspect of this, like it just really just sucked me right back to 2001 and reading the letters from people who, you know, were, were, you know, were talking about reading this the day after 9-11, but, you know, they all, you know, found it, I guess, comforting to an extent in terms of what, mm-hmm. what transpires in the issue and that, that speech from the construction worker that, you know, that you were talking about, you know, they, some one of the letter writers specifically mentioned, mentioned that. And, you know, the editor in response was taught, was explaining to everyone, like, you know, we work three months in advance, you know, like this had mm-hmm. already shipped. I mean, it was absolutely nuts. But yeah, as far as the, you know, what was going on in the real world at the time, I mean, it's, it is eerie how, how that, that entire storyline, our worlds mm-hmm. at war, but specifically that issue landed when it did. Nuts. You know what? It's weird because I was reading this at that time. And this was when I was buying, you know, a ton of comics every Wednesday. So I would have been there that Wednesday picking this up the day after. Um, I don't I maybe I was just still in shock from the whole thing or what, but I don't remember having any reaction to it or connecting it at all to 9-11. Maybe it's because I think maybe it was just overshadowed by the fact that Marvel had done their big 9-11 issue in, in Amazing Spider-Man and maybe it was just because that was so in your face, you know, arguably um, a little bit too heavy handed. Um, so so it didn't really hit me so much that this was this came out after 9-11. Um, something, too, about the the Lex here. And, you know, I was trying as I'm rewatching Smallville, I'm realizing that I mean, I've, I've always loved Michael Rosenbaum has always been like the best thing about Smallville for me. And his take on Lex is, you know, undoubtedly my favorite part of my favorite, my favorite take on the character in general. But, and when I was thinking about my conception of Lex, I, I think in my head, I just assumed it was all Rosenbaum, but going back and reading Casey's Superman run, I think there's a little bit of Casey's take on Lex in there too, because he's got this whole thing where, I mean, the fact when he loses his memory and he's, he is trying to do the right thing, right? He's trying to be, he's trying to be the good guy. And I like that idea of Lex being this guy who, and one of the things that frustrates me about this Smallville rewatch is you could look at it as basically the story about how a town and was such an asshole to this nice guy and turned him into a supervillain because he's the nicest guy on the show. And then, uh, and everybody's gaslighting him. His father's emotionally abusive and no wonder he becomes a supervillain. But, um, but yeah, I, I see a lot of those Rosenbaum parallels in Casey's Lex like he's he's very hyper he's hyper intelligent um I think sometimes the the early post-crisis Lex was a bit too cartoonish in how evil he was and and I like this version where there's a lot more nuance to his character I I agree and I I echo that about Smallville I say that all the time he was the nicest guy in town at the beginning and you know, for as much as, yeah, there's an argument, you know, the nature versus nurture. And, and yeah, maybe in terms of his nature, he was starting at a deficit, but mm-hmm. nature did him no favors. But I think that's yeah. why that, you know, it makes the, you know, it makes the show so interesting. And I, you know, I've, and I've talked about this before, but you know, the, the question of Clark's complicity in mm-hmm. 
in what he ends up becoming. And and again, I'm not saying, oh, Clark is ultimately responsible, but there's at least a question there. Uh, and, and I think that that just makes the proceedings that much more interesting. And along those lines, you know, Pete Ross in this, the vice president, you know, he, mm. he pops up a few times and he's, he takes Lex at his word. I mean, he seems to really believe that Lex's intentions are, are genuine and, you know, whether or not we're supposed to, or maybe not, but it's interesting that for, for Pete, like he's, and he's on the inside, right? Like he's seeing a lot of this mm-hmm. stuff. He is on board. Yeah. You know, it's funny talking about Smallville too. And, um, his, I think reading this stuff with Pete in here, it made me realize what a missed opportunity we had in that show to give Pete more to do by having him and Lex establish a relationship. Um, cause seeing how he is here, you could definitely see like, that initial antagonism growing into a friendship and eventually being as vice president. I mean, if they had worked, if they had planned stuff out a little bit better when they were doing their continuity shuffling, you could have easily worked all that stuff in. And I think that would have made a lot, because I remember at the time it almost seemed like they were just, I don't remember because I wasn't reading completely at that month to month and my memories bit faded but so you might have a better uh response to this than me but it almost felt like they made pete his vice president just because they wanted uh, a vice president who had a personal connection to superman i'm not sure but i think if there was more of a personal connection there because it would have made things a lot more interesting i think yeah for sure yeah i mean i think that was you know i guess in terms of of the writers constructing that story i'm sure you know that was and you know it pulls lana into it as well and and mm-hmm. even beyond that you know lex's cabinet cat grant is the press secretary you know right not black lightning's of, the secretary of education yeah so i mean they definitely you know pulled in but i, I won't derail us with the whole smallville thing but i i recently happened to be re-watching uh pete's final episode uh, on Smallville in season three. And, and, you know, as, as you might recall it, you know, it ends, he's, he's abducted by this FBI agent, right. And he's beaten, you know, to try to get information about Clark and Lex rescues him at the end. And as they're walking away, Pete's like, Hey, thank you, man. Like you saved my life. And Lex is like, well, I'm sure you'll find some way to repay me. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was this, and I remember at the time being like, Oh, and then like later he'll be his vice president. And you know, of course, I remember Pete, thinking that too. Yeah. This is the last episode until you know, he pops up one more time before the whole thing is done. But yeah, I think definitely a lot of untapped potential uh, on the show, but yeah, the, the Pete role in this, I thought was, um, you know, was definitely interesting to get, to get his perspective on it. What did you think about the, the golden age Superman bringing him in? Well, so going back to what you're saying about the social commentary here. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the other, one of the other things that stood out about this run um, earlier on, there's the uh, citizens army for the economic liberation of suicide slum. Mm-hmm. And that, that brought up, you know, kind of a, kind of an interesting angle too, where, you know, the city has been transformed by this Brainiac 13 technology, but Perry White is writing editorials about, uh, I guess, not being overly reliant on it, but the the result, at least in the case of Suicide Slum, would be that all these factory workers would be out of a job. It was a mm-hmm. little unclear to me exactly how the dominoes would fall in a case like that, but that seemed to be the gist of it, right? Something like that, yeah. The whole B-13, that was one of the things I didn't really quite like about this era was the whole B-13 tech. Um, it feels like it's it's taking it a little bit into too fantastical territory. It's fine if you do it for like one storyline, but to have it in the background of this whole run felt really kind of odd, especially in retrospect. Um, so I didn't really like that aspect of it, but I did like the 
the so the 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 catalyst doesn't isn't is kind of muddy muddy for me but the result of it i think works a lot better it it makes and i think even like the whole idea of like him getting uh parker cole parker getting taken in by this mystery guy with and i mean i even like and the whole i don't know i was seeing some QAnon shades even in that too oh interesting so i thought that again you know this is another case of um Casey being a little bit prescient here. Uh, but going back to what yeah. you were you were asking about that issue. So 612, the man of yesterday versus the man of tomorrow. So mm-hmm. yeah, I really, I really dug this this swing of issues here. Uh, you know, this issue, and then we get into the three-part uh Heroville story. Right, yeah. Uh, with the hollow men. And so essentially we're introduced to this author who uh, Clark knows from his from his school days, right? Mm-hmm. Who's primarily this, uh, you know, nonfiction writer who specializes in the heartland and stories of, of farmers and, and, and that lifestyle. But he's written to fiction books, and, and we'll get to the first one later, but, you know, in, in uh, Adventure 612, he's writing this new story, and essentially the character that he's writing is, for all intents and purposes, the golden age, and literally it's called the champion of the oppressed, like the social crusader right. version of Superman. And... I think later in the later story, it, it becomes clear that the power stems from the typewriter that he has, not mm-hmm. not so much from himself personally, but essentially what he writes in these fiction stories, it becomes real, right? Inadvertently, yeah. he doesn't know that this is happening. Uh, so this champion of the oppressed in blue and red that he's created is is out there. He's he's stopping an execution. I mean, just like you know, Action Comics number one, right? Well, yeah, it's funny because I had. Um... I'd listened to your golden age episode and that made me go back and, and pick up the the first volume. And I'd started reading some of those stories and you know, from, from uh, my interaction. So I, I'm a loudmouth lefty. So I love this kind of, and you know, I felt a lot of uh, kinship with Ben Conrad and this idea of wanting um, a, a superhero who is, a, who is, you know, fighting for the oppressed. I think that, and God, that resonates so much today, even more. Um, so yeah, I totally dug these issues and just like all the meta commentary on how Superman has changed because you see it so much because this guy, I mean, Casey's not exaggerating when, when I went back and I reread those and I started reading some of those golden age stories, that's literally like you could have just taken this character, not changed a word and it would fit in completely with those golden age stories. Absolutely. And, and I mean, I know you heard in that episode, I mean, I was, I was so taken with the golden age version of the character. And similarly, I, you know, I really enjoyed the early uh, Morrison new 52 take right. uh, on that iteration, which really called back to the golden age beginnings and, and the social crusader. Cause I think it, you know, it, it adds a lot of, 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 of relevance. I mean, it, and it just, there's something very compelling about him taking on these, again, like very, very, personal causes that people can can identify with so yeah to see what superman has become you know as more of the symbol of the status quo and like to pit that against the social crusader i guess it would have been cool if this had prompted a little bit more self-reflection in superman i don't feel like that was the point Mm -hmm. of the story you know ben conrad ends up destroying the manuscript and that's kind of it i i don't know that it led to where necessarily i i would have liked and and i think and I always love more to talk about, but when we look at this Casey run as a whole, I, 
I, I, like I said, I think it holds up generally pretty well. I enjoyed a lot of it. I don't know how well it all like really coalesced into mm-hmm. a run that, you know, would stand the test of time. There's a lot of really good stuff here, but I think there are some instances where, again, I, again, like I said, I just didn't feel like it totally, totally came together. And, and in a microcosm of that, I feel like that issue was, was representative of that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Casey has a lot of big ideas that he he starts to put together and they get really interesting. And then, and again, I'm not sure how much of this may have been editorial driven or, or what, but the, there's, there's lacking a payoff in, in a lot of them. And, and that's one of that, that, I mean, cause that's such an interesting topic to explore both in a meta sense and in, you know, and in the, and in the character sense is tying it back to that whole how much should superman do like how much should superman get involved in these affairs i mean i think the the golden age superman had a bit of an out where he wasn't as powerful right so um whereas this superman you know he he is he can punch planets out of orbit so it's a you're getting into um godlike territory when he starts messing with these kinds of issues so that's an interesting question there that's being posed and it's um, but yeah, I, and I, one thing I also, I loved about this is the fact that we see Clark passionate about journalism at a young age, like this guy, Ben Conrad inspires him to become a journalist. And I think you've talked about this a lot before. So often journalism is just kind of used as an excuse. And as we move further and further away from that era where be, just being on the internet gives you as much connection, have, have as much in the mirror to the ground as being in the newsroom. Um, you have less of a need as that being the job he has to do. So I like it when we have some sort of personal connection. So this idea of this journalist who had, who had focused on the oppressed, on the forgotten people in the heartland being something that inspires Clark to become a reporter. I think that's, that's such a great addition to the character's uh, mythology. Well said. And, you know, I guess just circling back to this idea of the social crusader version, your, your, your point is, is very apt. I, I, I agree. It's definitely a different dynamic when you have the power set that Superman has now, right? Because mm-hmm. now the intervention that he's engaging in is, is really affecting things on, on, on such a, you know, <laughs> a bigger scale, right? And it does right. pose those questions. But, you know, and part of me wonders too, but going back to the new 52 Superman, if that was just a little too early, like I feel like if that had come out more recently, it would have played better maybe because I think not not that these failings have not been happening, but I think people now are more aware and it's, you know, with, you know, politics and healthcare and education and like there are so many, so many instances where the system is, is not, doing what it needs to be doing for people. And so if you have mm-hmm. a character like Superman with the power to to affect change, again, I think it's such fertile territory to to mine. So I I, you know, I know I keep saying this because I still haven't gotten to it yet, but I understand that the Son of Kal-El series with John Kent that's, that's being published now that Tom Taylor is writing, my understanding is that they are getting at least a bit more into that territory and I think that's great. I, I would love to see, you know, something more along those lines with, with Clark again, because I, I think there's a lot to explore. Yeah. Um, and I think about the new 52, uh, cause again, I had just listened to your episode yesterday. And I think what you had said there is that this would have been, that era would have been better received if it was not the replacing the main continuity. I think there's a lot of truth to that 
because I mean, yeah, those early Morrison issues, especially were just so well done. It was so interesting to see this, um, this kind of raw version of Superman. Who's like, you know, holding CEOs off of buildings and stuff like that. And, um, and seeing that golden age Superman in a modern context was so interesting and so cool. So I think, yeah, I think you were right that the biggest complaint, I mean, there were other complaints too with some of the books, but at least when it came to things like Superman, the biggest complaint was really that, you know, why are you throwing away this character that everybody's been reading? Whereas if you had just, and you could even look at something when um, Marvel had tried to do something similar with uh, chapter one and Spider-Man, everybody got, and I never read chapter one, so I don't know if it was good or not. So I can't, I'm not commenting <clears throat> on the quality of it. It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but well, even like, the clone saga or anything like that when you're you're telling him this character that you've been reading for all these years is suddenly null and void and now here's this new version of the character that you got to start reading that's a hard pill for people to swallow and if you do it instead as which is why i think ultimate was so successful not only was the fact was it you know well written but also was the fact that this is not the main peter parker we still have the main peter parker he's still an adult he's still married to mary jane and all that for the time being but but that and then when they when they get when they started messing with that, that's when people got angry. So I think having these multiple versions is is a really cool way to explore some of those ideas. Seems like a no brainer to me. But mm -hmm. in any event, so you know that issue introduces us to to Ben Conrad, and then we also have a couple of issues where the Hollow Men, these these black mm. and white figures, are uh, doing something to to various metahumans and and rendering them uh, you know sort of catatonic and in this black and white state as well. And that takes us to the three-part uh, Heroville story where uh, Superman discovers this community, Heroville, uh, ensconced in this tesseract. And mm -hmm. essentially there was this scientist who you know, was, was cultivating metahumans uh, in the 50s, around the time, you know, post-World War II, when the Justice Society was the subject of these congressional hearings and then forced into retirement. And so uh, this doctor and this whole community of metahumans he created just kind of left and stayed in this tesseract for decades and formed their own community mm -hmm. and then they're ultimately invaded by the hollow men right so characters from ben conrad's first fiction novel and their whole their whole uh you know mo is 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 basically uh promoting this homogenous culture mm -hmm. right they're trying to drain away any any color any originality any free thinking and and metahumans are their primary target and so finding mm. this heroville uh community uh is is you know a, a gold mine for them i did, did you like this story because i it's probably one of my favorites from this run yeah i liked it a lot i thought it was it was really cool to see this um this and again i thought I, I saw a lot of meta stuff in this um especially this whole idea of like drain their individuality and there's one scene when the hollow men are using their powers on superman and he's talking about like no hope and all this. And I think that was kind of like a meta commentary on what was happening to a lot of superhero books at the time. This idea of, you know, we have to make it more realistic. We have to make it more grim and gritty and all that kind of stuff. And Casey and, and Morrison were two of the writers who were really kind of criticizing that a lot in their work in, in uh, different meta ways. Uh, Morrison, especially in, uh, I'm not sure if you ever read their Aztec, the ultimate man series, but there was a lot of that kind of stuff in that. Um, Casey does a little bit of that in here too. And 
another thing that kind of um stood out to me was this one line when superman says he's a pacifist i thought that was kind of an interesting that line jumped out at me and where i get what casey was saying but i'm not sure that description really fits so much with him what did you think about that line yeah that was i guess one of the last big things that i I wanted to hit on because in in what little I did find about this run out there, I, I think the idea of of Superman as a pacifist is something that people have remembered from this run. Mm-hmm. And so I think going into it, I was looking, or I guess I thought it would be more of a prevalent theme. To to the best of my recollection, this is the only instance where it's explicitly said, like where he yeah. tells someone, "I'm a pacifist." Now, I mean, I didn't go back, but I guess if you look at the other stories, you know, he's not throwing punches in in most of these stories so i i guess mm. that tracks i mean it, i guess and this is my own ignorance but i mean how how exactly do you define a pacifist because for him it's like yeah i don't don't think he's ever i don't think he ever resorts to a physical confrontation or to violence as his first you know as mm. his first response but at the same time when the situation calls for it he he will engage in it as as needed, but I guess is the idea that a pacifist won't under any circumstances. I mean, I guess what? How do we view that? That's a good question. That's a very good question. I was I was wondering. I've been that's something I've uh, kind of struggled with myself because for a long time I've called myself a pacifist, but you know now have we seen things like you know, fascism coming back up? I'm maybe question that. It's like you know pacifism can only take you so far. I think, and so it does make me wonder. Um, can you really call yourself a pacifist if you're if you do use violence even if it is as a last resort i i don't know you can i'm not sure i'm not you know i don't know a whole lot about pacifist um uh philosophy in general so i don't know how if there are degrees of it but my understanding of it was always like if you're going to be a pacifist that means you're you're shunning all forms of violence in form in favor of finding another way and this Superman, he does find another way in a lot of these stories, but he still throws down on occasion. So I'm not sure if I would really, it, it was an odd line for me, especially in the context of coming out of our worlds at war too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just a very quick Google, Google search here. <laughs> Pacifist is a person who believes that war and violence are unjustifiable. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, yeah, it does. Well, I mean, I guess that, you know, that poses a question and I don't know if the stories here really get into it, but it's like, you know, it, is he a pacifist because he will engage in violence, but he still doesn't. But that's the thing. Does he not think it's justified? That's That does not line up mm-hmm. with the way I would see the character. I feel like there are instances where it is justified, and I don't think he would argue otherwise. So I disagree, I disagree with this characterization. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting idea to play with, and I think this would make for a really cool Elseworlds. Like, what if Superman was a pacifist or something like that? And I think that would be really cool to explore. But in the context of the main universe Superman titles, it it feels really out of place. I think also in this story, I guess the the conflict and the antagonist here, the Holloman, you know, they're designed such that they can be overcome. I mean, effectively, two things are going on, right? Ben Conrad is in Heroville and he's got his typewriter and he's typing up a new ending to the story right to, to change what's happening mm-hmm. but hand in hand with that superman is 
allowing himself to be attacked by them again. And like you said before, when he initially was, he was feeling this hopelessness and despair and, and everything, and his mm-hmm. hand was turning gray or whatever. And so he wants to be able to overcome it. And so he allows himself to be subjected to this again, but this time he thinks of Lois and their love, and right, mm-hmm. he's able to overcome it. So that's an instance where there's a way out built in because it, it's ultimately not fisticuffs that are required mm-hmm. of him. I think that if you want to get into this territory and to your point, yeah, maybe the monthly, maybe there's just not, not the place for it. Or maybe he wanted to do more and he wasn't allowed to, I, I have no idea, but yeah. I feel like if you want to do that, then you really need to put him in a situation where you're forcing his hand. You know, what if there is a situation where you really have to throw down in order to save people and mm. that butts up against your pacifism? What do you do then? Then I think it gets more interesting here. I yeah. agree. I, that, when I heard that line, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and mm-hmm. I don't think I don't. Yeah. So I don't know that that really landed. Um, something else too. And this whole idea of the hollow hollow men and all that, the idea of this idea of preserving Eisenhower's America, right. That like Norman Rockwell, 1950 style America and how the, the superheroes kind of buck up against that. I kind of like that. Cause there's often this discourse in popular culture that superheroes are symbols of the establishment symbols of conservatism and if you actually look at the history of them that's not really true um like i mean you go back to the golden age superman right he's you know tossing poly- he's tossing you know slum lords around and you know beating up knocking out wife beaters and and stopping them from executing people like he's he's very much you know bucking the establishment and that's true for a lot of different characters throughout the years. I mean, yeah, after the comics book code authority, there's this big push to make them more, um, more conservative, more quote unquote family friendly, whatever that means. But that only lasts so long. And then when we get into the the silver age and we get to the seventies with Marvel, you know, you had a lot of superheroes who were, I mean, Nixon shot himself off panel in captain America. So I think there's, and I think, so I think it's interesting that, Casey was playing with this idea of superheroes, not as symbols of the establishment, but as symbols of individuality. And I think that's a much more interesting. And again, I'm biased because I'm a loudmouth lefty, but it's a much more interesting idea for me anyway. Yeah, I know. That's a good point. I, I do like that. I did like that aspect of it. So as we make our way into as I'm sort of flipping issues over here on, on my pile, as we make our way into the the final batch of Casey issues, we get a two part uh, Mixia Spitalik story where he's reimagined as twins, uh, mm. Dale and Dolores or something like that. Yeah, yeah. What was your um, What was your take? I mean, look, you know, and the audience knows uh, these sorts of stories. <laughs> we're dealing with magic and Mixia Spitalik. Eh, they they tend to not do a ton for me. Here, these twins show up and they're trying to sell a set of their uh, encyclopedia uh, Universal or or, <laughs> or whatever they're mm-hmm. called. Uh, and, and we kind of go from there. We get to the point where they uh, eliminate all gravity from the planet. So they really uh, initiate you know, worldwide uh, catastrophe. Uh, mm-hmm. But Superman, you know, ever, ever able to find a way is able to repurpose the Adam's white dwarf star and shove it into the Earth's core and alternate between cold breath and heat vision to make it expand mm-hmm. and contract. And that force is able to replicate gravity. Uh, so, you know, uh, that was, a, I, th- I thought, a cool resolution. Uh, what, what did you think of this story? Uh, it was fun. Um, 
it, it it's kind of overshadowed by a lot of the philosophical stuff that happened in the um in the Heroville arc, which came right before this. So it was kind of a letdown after that. Cause like we said, I really wanted to see more about that exploration of Superman as a pacifist and all that, but just reading these two issues in isolation, it's a fun story. It's a nice little, and again, there's some meta commentary here. This whole idea of mix mixes Pedelec wanting to be more of a serious supervillain and be more dangerous. Um, and also the idea of retconning, right? They're, in the way he, Casey's kind of mocking the idea of retconning. Hey, you remember that guy a few issues earlier who came out of nowhere and had powers? Well, now he was he was us the whole time. He's like, was he really? It's like he is now, and nobody can tell us differently. That was very clever, and I wonder. That's a question I I, I would love to have answered. Whether Casey set that up from the very beginning, or if it was one of those things where it's like, yeah, he had never given us an explanation as to who this mysterious benefactor was to, to Cole Parker. And then this opportunity presented itself and I was like, Oh, I'll have some fun with it. Either way, it works to great effect. I thought it was mm. very funny. Yeah. My reading of that was, I think, I feel like Casey had more stuff planned in this run and maybe he had had something bigger planned for it because there's that connection to Krypton when, um, when Cole uses his, um, his axe. Oh, you're so, right. That's right. So I think, I think there was some larger plan he had that he was going to build up to. And then, you know, I guess the rug got pulled out of and then he says, OK, well, I'm just going to tie this up in a bow and make a commentary on the fact that I was forced to tie it up this way. And I thought that was a it was kind of a clever way to do that. Um, there's even a, a little bit of a Kirby connection. Remember, they're going through like all these different versions of reality. And there's this one where it's like this mix of Asgard and the fourth world, which was kind of what Jack Kirby originally intended, because when he came to D.C., a lot of the fourth world stories were basically his Thor stories reimagined. Gotcha. And he had had this, this idea of, I think like the beginning of fourth world, it opens up with on Ragnarok and like the remains of Marvel's Asgard and the fourth world springs up out of the ashes of that. So uh, that was a nice little commentary on that. But yeah, they're fun. I like when, to your point, I, I agree with you that I don't really like the, when they use too much magic in, in Superman stories. Um, but I do like when they go, weird sciency with it and i feel like mixes pitalik especially in this story leans more towards the weird sciency aspect especially when you're getting into using the dwarf star and all that kind of stuff and this stuff that is obviously techno babble but it but it works in the context of this story and it, it's fun in that way so i like that aspect of it yeah as do i and it's also i guess we add this to the list of things that a case he set up that, you know, either he didn't have the opportunity to do more with or, you know, subsequent writers decided not to. But the, the, the mix he has twins bit. I, I'm not aware mm. of any other instances where this this idea was utilized. No, I think it pretty much it was just here. And then I think it's just um, I'm not even sure when Mixie appeared again after this. Do you know? I think in the Rucka run, which we will be talking okay. about very soon. Uh, so but, you'll be able to, to tell us if there's any reference to that then. So I'll be able to answer. Yeah, maybe there is a payoff here. I mean, you know, mm. that's and that's the thing with this, uh, you know, and if there's any, I know there have been a few instances where we've said, you know, we haven't been sure, right? And so anyone mm -hmm. out there, if you remember more vividly uh, about any of these things, you know, please let me know. But uh, it's, you know, it's this weird thing because like, I love this era so much, but it a lot of time has passed. And, you know, this is a pocket of it that I have not, you know, been in in a really long time. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's certain things I, you know, I wish I remembered more specifically. But, uh, you know, again, at least I was able to get my hands on on these issues. Now, one thing I also wanted to talk about was the 
the 613, the funky Flashman issue. Oh, sure. Um, uh, and I didn't know this, but I went back and I and I did some research. And uh, do you know that funky Flashman was Kirby's satire of Stan Lee? Oh, my God. Okay. I forgot when I was reading, but I knew that I knew it from somewhere. And I was like, <laughs> where did I couldn't? Okay. So that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So I like this idea of like him being this kind of hyper capitalist where he's Superman's in the public domain. So I can use his, his symbol and slap it on anything I want. And where he's using workers in third world countries who are hooked on velocity 10 so they can work faster. And he's like, but you know what? There are no laws against it. So you can't punish me for that. Um, and this was also the issue where we get that whole Superman and Lois, like replaying the my night with Superman conversation, uh, which is a fun little callback. But one of the things I did like about this issue is that it, it's very Lois centric. And, um, you know, Superman, he demolishes the Velocity 10 factories, but it all happens off panel, right? He just says later, he, he says, he's like, oh, yeah, I took care of those factories. And Lois takes out uh, Funky Flashman in her own way because she tells him, hey, you know, <laughs> this is so clever. She says, you know what people like even more than a superhero is a supervillain. They love that rebellious thing. And, you know, a superhero is not going to, you know, maybe they'll get maybe get angry about it or get peeved about it, but they're not going to do anything. But you know, the supervillains are going to get pissed off and they're going to come calling. And they do, uh, represented mm. by Captain Cold, which it was a great, you know, he gets his comeuppance and it's a great payoff. But part of me wondered, like, just from a, from an ethical standpoint, I mean, Lois, you know, Lois really set him up for, I mean, at a minimum, the destruction of his business, very likely mm -hmm. some physical harm, possibly even death. Now, look, I think it's fair to say this guy made his bed and now he's got to lie in it and you know, whatever he has coming his way is, is deserved. So I think Lois can still sleep soundly at night, but it did, it did cross my mind. I'm like, Oh, you like really set this guy up. You know, uh, it's funny you mentioned that because as I was skimming over these issues to refresh my memory last night, that did pop into my head too. I'm like, okay, I, I do love that. She solves the problem in her own way. And, um, and she does it in this kind of clever way to kind of give him his comeuppance. But Part of me did wonder, you know, what if it wasn't Captain Cold, right? What if, like, it was the Joker who came calling? I think, you know, what would have softened it is if Superman were there, mm -hmm. right? So the message gets across to, to Flashman, right? Like, listen, right. if you do this, they're going to come for you. And that's enough to get him to change his ways. But that's not the way it plays out. So, yeah, it was, like, surprisingly... <laughs> dark <laughs> dark turn here so and you don't i mean if i remember correctly i mean you don't you don't really know what happens right yeah just kind of like just like oh it problems taken care of yeah so uh no i'm glad i'm glad you brought that up now 619 and 620 as we wind down here uh these dealt with the candidate i know you had mentioned this before mm. but so this uh political up-and-comer with seemingly no genuine ideology, but the ability to whip up a crowd into a frenzy uh, with nonsense slogans like we can achieve. Now, again, as far as <laughs> being able to predict what, what we would live through, like I say, you know, again, was was eerie to see these rallies that, you know, Lois and Clark are, are, are attending as, as they're investigating and, and seeing the effect that this guy is having on people. I'm sure yeah, you had similar thoughts. Oh God, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that was, and I'm just double checking the the date this came out in. Um, October 2003. 2003. So I mean, this is even pre-Obama with yes we can and all that, right? And and it's like this is a time when you know politicians 
were not very electrifying. Like, let's be real. I mean, o- Obama was kind of an outlier at the time. Um, but yeah, I thought that was, that was, that was, it's really weird reading these issues now. And it's making me kind of wonder if, you know, Casey cut a deal with the gypsy woman or something. It's, I, I know it, there. I mean, and like, like I said, I mean, we have few instances now of things mm. that, uh, you know, predicted what, what we would actually see. So I don't know. I mean, I, again, I know we're more attuned you know, to look for them, but at the same time, it's right there. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was, it was interesting. Um, and I, but I, it, it also, what I think I love most about this is, is just how, how much it worked with the, the Clark and Lois relationship. I thought that was just, that was really the strongest point, which, which is not what I was expecting when I started reading these issues. Like when we got to them and saw the whole thing with the candidate, I thought this was going to be very politically heavy and, and there is some politics stuff in it, but it was much more about Clark and Lois. And I, and I did kind of find myself really liking that. Yeah. Same, same. Uh, I'll be honest. The, the next two parter with the insects, that was kind of a skim for me. That was, yeah, I think that was probably, so even though I thought the, even though I liked the art on the mirror, mirror arc, I think that one and, uh, this, the insect two-parter were, were, were my least favorite of the art. Gotcha. Um, and I, yeah, think, I mean, yeah. like, I think, they, I think they had seemed like it was going somewhere interesting when Superman goes into their world and, um, there seemed to be a good opportunity for this idea of, okay, well, you know, we're hero, you know, you don't understand what's happening here. There was a good chance to play with this idea of like, you know, different cultural ideas and all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, they're still invading another universe and taking over children. So it, I feel like they could have made that a lot more interesting if they had tried. Yeah. I, Again, I, I appreciate you you reading it. Like I said, I, I did not spend much time with it. And but I think wh- going back to what we were talking about before of just memories and impressions of this run, I you know, I, I if as best as I can remember, I mean, I feel like I it kind of lost me around here. And mm-hmm. and I think this and this was like right at the very end of the run. And I think you know this was another instance of something kind of like coloring my overall perception of it. So. Mm-hmm. You know, again, up, upon reread, there's a lot more to enjoy in the other stories, but I, I think that does help account for why why I kind of wrote this run off um, mm-hmm. at, at the time. Now, uh, I know we've already talked a little bit about the final issue. We can circle back to it, but there. Uh, well, one thing I want to talk about. Yeah. One thing I did want to mention about this last issue of the the bug arc, and I did like this little speech that he gives at the end when he talks about the Minuteman sacrifice. And Superman says, you know, I never get tired of witnessing that kind of heroism keeps me honest. I did like that aspect that, you know, Superman also takes in because we always think of Superman as being like the inspiration for all these heroes of the DC universe. And I I like this. I We don't see very often the opposite, like how they also inspire him. And it's kind of like this, this, you know, it, it's a very what's the word I'm looking for? Um you know, kind of like I was saying earlier, how you talking about Casey mentioned that one mentioned made me say like, oh, you should go put, cover those. And then that kind of triggered this whole yeah, thing. Like in reciprocal the or cyclical. Recipro- yeah. Then, yeah, reciprocity. And I think that's a really nice aspect. And it shows 
one of the things I love about Superman is his humility. And, and I think this, we don't get to see a lot of moments like this where he's inspired by what these other heroes do, especially someone like the Minuteman, who's this nobody that nobody knows about. And Clark gets inspiration from his sacrifice. I think that's a really cool idea that I would like to see explored more. For sure. And that's actually a perfect segue to 623 Casey's final issue, which like I said, we touched on before, but you know, Lois and Clark have this issue long conversation and he's telling her these stories about adv adventures he's had. And one thing that comes up is, you know, he tells the story about the justice league being mind controlled by Hector Hammond mm -hmm. and, and everything. But in the lead up to that, he's like, you know, I don't not trying to be their leader or the one they look to, you know, I'm just doing what I'm doing and if I can lead by example, but you know, that position as the one that they, that they all look to is not one that he aspires to or leans into. And, and I, and I think that tracks with that, with that humility. And he, you know, echoes that later on in the issue where he talks about how, you know, he just does what he's able to, right. And we see flashes mm. of a paramedic and, and a nurse and, and a, a fireman, right? And I think that that is how he sees himself. Like he does what he's able to do. He's just able to do a lot, a lot more. Yeah. Um, and then also, also another connection. This is kind of the stuff that I wish we'd seen more of that um, 599, uh, Borba's, uh, yes. like that. And, you know, again, this idea of which you've talked about, like this idea of Clark always coming back to the farm and here literally, and his whole thing about, finding that connection with this this former admiral or captain or whatever he was who was a farmer before and then is a farmer at the end of his life and just that whole idea of like superman connecting with him and he's like i'm gonna help you finish this work before you die and again those kinds of little human to human moments i think really help sell what a what an interesting character superman is so this ties it all together, you know, talking about access to these issues. This, the 599 was the one that was not on the app, nor was it in that lot that I bought from eBay, which started with 600. So I did have to resort to other means for that. And the scans were poor quality, but I was still able to read it. And I'm glad I did. I almost didn't. I was, because I knew, you know, it was a one-off and I figured, ah, maybe I'll just let this one slide. But I'm glad I read it. It was very heartwarming. Uh, so yeah, you have the submarine captain and, you know, Superman rescues the sub and we find out later that, uh, the captain is dying and, you know, Superman spends a, a good bit of time, uh, with him in, in his final days. And, and like you said, helps him, um, you know, complete the harvest there. And he's able to do that because of who he is in, in, in both of his forms, right? The power mm -hmm. enables him to do it, the speed that he does, but it's his time on the farm and that, and that knowledge uh, from his upbringing that, that enables him to be able to do this. So I thought that was such a great moment. And he reveals himself, not, not mm -hmm. his, his actual name, but he reveals to this person who's dying that he grew up on a farm in Kansas. And it's, it's such a heartfelt human moment between mm -hmm. the two of them. I'm getting choked up just like hearing you say that and just looking back over these panels, like this, this line he says, um, and you know, they don't, he doesn't say that his parents were farmers, but the captain figures it out and he says, oh, they were farmers. And he says this great line, farmers see the world differently. We work the land. It becomes a part of us. And so we see the, the earth as a whole. We don't see borders. Even at sea, I never forgot the feeling of the land beneath my feet. And 
Yeah, that, and it's it's even more interesting because I wonder too if they knew what they were going to do about Jonathan because this is still post Worlds at War when he was missing, if I'm not mistaken. So I wonder how much of this is was kind of like Casey intending it to be in a subtle way, like his last conversation with Jonathan. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I can't remember exactly when he came back. I mean, because yeah, this is only three or four months after. I know Jonathan wasn't missing for that long, but it's yeah, I mean, he might have still been missing at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even even if he had popped up in the other books, even still, the fact that Clark had gone through this period of not knowing what happened to him, I think definitely adds a lot of weight um, to that scene. So listen, man, uh, this has really been a lot of fun. Is there anything that we haven't talked about with respect to this run that you wanted to? Um, I can't think of anything. No, I mean, I think we, we, we covered a lot here and uh, I'm just scanning through my notes real quick. Um, while you no, do that, I, think I, we, I, we covered pretty much, I think, yeah, we covered pretty much everything that I think I wanted to say about this. Uh, overall it's, it's, um, it's a little bit different from what I remembered, but not in a bad way. Like I still really enjoyed it and I found different ways to look at it than I think I, and there are things I noticed in this that I never would have picked up on when I was reading it the first time. So this was a, this is a really fun reading project. And honestly, you know, I just, I, I just wish DC would get their act together with, um, with reprinting this kind of stuff, because I would, I would love to have like a, a Joe Casey omnibus of, of these issues. Yeah. I mean, there's good stuff here. And I, what I was just going to say is that, uh, you know, we, cause I've been keeping track and, I don't think anything slipped through the cracks. Like we, we touched, we at least touched on every issue or arc in this run. So I think we Mm. did a good job of sort of giving an overview of, of what, of what Casey did over these, over these couple of years. You know, I appreciate taking the time uh, to do the reading and to talk to me all the way from Japan, uh, which is very cool to, to have you on here. And, you know, thanks to you and thank you to other listeners who have asked about this run, because like I said, I was, really pretty much resigned to writing this off. I was, I was really at the point where I, I said to myself, you know, to go through the time and expense to track down these issues, you know, I, I it's like, I just felt like DC should, should have these available. And if they're not, yeah. it's like, I'm not going to go through this process. So I was kind of at the point where I'm like, you know what, if, and when DC puts them on the app or they put out new trades, then I'll do it. But otherwise that's it. And I just still couldn't shake it. And then, you know, folks asked about it and I'm glad that we did it because like I said, to go back to this era means a lot to me, but to, to these issues in particular, you know, I had largely written them off. I didn't have a a particularly strong memory of them and reading them now, there's a lot to enjoy. Definitely got more out of it now than I, than I did or than I would have as a kid. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, I would say to anyone out there, I I mean, it's tough because I wish I could say like, okay, here you can (laughs) go read them. Yeah. if, if you happen to have them or you know someone who has them or you have means to procure them, I will say, look, as far as buying them on eBay, they were not, you know, they weren't cost prohibitive at least. Um, so, you know, that's that's a potential recourse. Hit up your local comic shop, <laughs> you know, scour the, the the back issue bins. You might find some. I mean, on the on the plus side here, I'll end on a positive note. Like we said, these are all primarily one or two part stories. So, you know, even if you don't track down all of the issues, you know, even mm-hmm. if you pick up a few here and there, you can still get complete stories. And in fairness, 
the first batch are on the app. So there are some out there. And I do think, again, 590, uh, where, where Superman goes to rescue the journalists, I think that's a, a very strong issue. And if you just kind of want an issue to sample whether or not you like Joe Casey's take on the character, I would say check out check out the ones that are on the app and then you can go from there. I would say um, I think the uh, the shipbuilding one, um, so that was the... Uh, 596 would be probably the one I would recommend as like the, the go-to one, just because that, that great speech with that, um, that guy, but yeah, 590 is also a really good one. And, um, uh, the one we were just six, uh, 599 too, would also be a good one too. Those are probably the best ones that I think would give you a very good sense of what you would get. If you, any of those, any one of those would give you a good sense of what you would get if you decide to go and pick up this whole run. And one of the good one of the you know good things in a way about this being so overshadowed and kind of this forgotten era is that these issues are probably very easily easy to procure for a very low cost like this isn't something like you know first appearance of you know doomsday or anything like that right these these aren't going to be um terribly expensive terribly sought after and this is a time when they were printing they were still doing multiple printings of of series so you could probably find these in quarter bins or 50 cent bins um so yeah check out your cons check out your local comic book store um i'm sure these these be very easy to find i i didn't have that option unfortunately because i'm in japan but um so uh so i had to rely on other means but yeah i mean that's just what i I wish dc would just because they've got all this stuff digitized to begin with they need them for archival purposes i know that so it just seems like such a missed opportunity. To, even if you don't put out a, a print collection, just put them out digitally and let people buy them. I mean, it would be so easy. And I would easily, I would, I, I I buy all my stuff digitally now anyway. I would definitely buy this collection if it came out. Preaching to the choir, my friend. Well, listen, thank you again for taking the time. And I hope that everyone will check out the uh, Superhero Cinephiles podcast. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for, for coming on. And thanks for doing this show, man. Thanks for having me on. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've said this before, but your show has given me um, a lot of new insight into into Superman, and it's made me take a look at some stuff like, you know, for example, I had never thought I was going to read those Golden Age stories. But after hearing you guys talk about them, it made me say, like, oh, you know, I want to go back and I'm going to, you know, check them out for myself now. So it's been uh, it's been a great job. I've been really enjoying the show. And, you know, I hope you keep up the good work as well. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Audience, thank you as always for tuning in. Make sure you come back next week. Not only is it our final episode of 2022, but we are going to be taking a look at the run on Adventures of Superman that followed Joe Casey's, the one we just discussed. That's right. We'll be talking about the Greg Rucka run on Adventures of Superman. You don't want to miss it. Our last episode of 2022. Make sure you come back next week. And until then, as always, it's about what you do. It's about action. Support the show and receive exclusive additional content, including my DC Movie Rewatch podcast at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato. Thank you to all patrons for enabling me to produce this show. Also, be sure to explore the other shows within the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network, which is home to Digging for Kryptonite, another exciting episode in The Adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, all hosted by yours truly. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Visit flatsquirrelproductions.com for more. Thank you all.